0: So, Father, our hearts are open to you. We ask that you speak to us tonight, that you glorify Jesus in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. So, as we always do, we try to understand the historical context behind every letter, to understand why it was written, to whom it was written, when it was written, perhaps, um, and essentially the background that helps us appreciate the content of the letter, We like to set that background so that we can um, resolve some of the difficult things that we find in the letters as we go, and also so that we can appreciate the trust of truth, right, that the writer is trying to communicate to us since these letters were originally written to believers over 2,000 years ago. So as you may have guessed, the book of this letter, 1 John, is written by the Apostle John, who many like to call the last apostle or the apostle that Jesus loved, right? Remember that if you've read the book of John, you'll know that John speaks of the one whom Jesus loved, the one who laid on Jesus' chest, who was closest to Jesus. Of Even in the inner circle, he was the closest. That's the apostle John. He knew Jesus like no one else did. Um, so that was his background. I remember at the end of his his gospel, John chapter 21, when Jesus reappeared to his disciples after they went fishing again and he began to instruct them about their destiny in him and what they are supposed to focus on. He said to Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? He said it until Peter realized that Jesus knew the answer to the question, but Jesus was only asking him that question for his own sake. And when he realized that, he said, Lord, you know all things. And then he said to Peter, feed my sheep and Peter realized that this is what this was his calling Um, and Jesus began to speak about Peter's death he said that when you were young you took your bag you took your clothes and you went where you wanted but the time is coming when they are going to take you by the hand and lead you to the place where you do not want to go and Peter understood it to indicate that he was going to die a gruesome death the place where you don't want to go and of course there's a there is an allegory there for us in the Christian life that the height of sonship is Jesus often leading us to places whereby ourselves we will not want to go, right? And so when when, when Jesus said that to Peter, Peter turned to John, right? And said, what shall this man do? So he was essentially asking Jesus to, to prophesy about John, to tell us what is John's own destiny? What is he supposed to, what role is he supposed to play? And Jesus made a statement that confused the disciples. He said that, okay, I think we should read it so that we don't misquote it and you can see it. John chapter 21, John chapter 21 from verse 20. Then Peter turning around saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who also had leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is this one who betrays you? So it was John who asked Jesus, Who is the one who's going to betray you at supper? Peter, seeing this disciple, seeing John, said to him, but Lord, what about this man? And I'm sure all of us have asked that question. You know, what about this man? What about me? What shall I do? Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, (laughs) what is that to you? You follow me. You see, Jesus was saying that I have a peculiar pathway for each person. I have a peculiar plan for each person. So as we read this letter of 1 John, you are going to realize that the style, the language, the texture of the letter is radically different from the one we just studied of Peter. And it is in the same scripture because Jesus can manage diversity. And in fact, diversity diversity of being, diversity of gifts is his design in the body. It says, you follow me, right? And I want you to know that there is a path for you. There is a pattern for you. It's easy to follow what is trendy, right? It's easy to follow what is popular. It's easy to to follow what moves. But Jesus' instruction is, you follow me. In verse 23, we then see the confusion this created. Then this saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. And then because John is this disciple, he tried to correct that error. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die. But Jesus said, if I will, that he remain till I come, what is that to you? So you can see, first of all, here that death does not have as much authority over a believer, right? As we often think it is because of how sudden and how tragic death can appear. Jesus said, if I will, that he remain till I come, what is that to you? So it was captured in the destiny of John that he was not going to die an ordinary death. Rather, he was going to drink the cup of suffering, right? Remember when um, they both came to Jesus with their mother, right? And said, and their mother appealed and said, grant that that both of my sons will sit at your right hand and your left hand. And she asked, she asked, or rather he asked her, are they able to partake of my baptism and drink of my cup? And she, without realizing what she was saying, said yes, that they are able to do it. And Jesus said, okay, so they are going to partake of my baptism and they are going to drink of my cup. However, who sits on my right and on my left is up to the Father to decide, not me. And so it was granted to James and John to play specific roles in the history of Christianity. James became the first martyr, indicating that he partook of the baptism of Christ. Baptism always means death baptism is never a sprinkling it means a submerging a passing through death and the blessing of water baptism is that you pass through a watery grave so that you can come out alive so james was the brother that took the baptism of christ which is which is laying down his life they're paying the ultimate price for his conviction he was the first of the apostles that was beheaded but john was supposed to bear the cup. Are you able to drink of my cup? It's the cup of suffering. And so church history tells us everything that was done to John to try to kill him, right? And they didn't succeed in killing him. Church history, not Bible, church history, which is mostly reliable, um, said that he was placed in boiling oil and he survived boiling oil. Church history says that a milestone was... Tied to his head and he was lowered into the sea and he survived that experience. They could not kill him, so they banished him to the Isle of Patmos, to the Isle of Patmos. And it was on that island that he received the book of Revelation. So this is the apostle. I said all of that to say that this is the apostle, this is the disciple that was by nature designed to live longest. And we can see the reason, right, why Jesus ensured that at least one apostle survived stayed the longest because at the time of the writing of 1st John and this is where we now begin to look at the history of the book at the time of the writing of 1st John the church had grown many scholars put this at maybe even 90 AD 90 years after the appearance of Christ right um or rather after the death of Christ, 90 years after that this letter was written, but we don't know. Um, But essentially it was written at a time where the church had had decades and with the decades came an infiltration into the church, right? All the apostles of the Lord at this time had been murdered, right? They had paid the ultimate price for their faith or at the very least they were scattered to the different corners of the earth. John was the last surviving elder. And he wrote this letter as an elder, and in this letter, he is. God kept him as the last apostle, and this is where I want you to follow because this is a very important point in unlocking some of the things that we're going to read in this letter. God kept John as the last apostle because his writings were supposed to speak to the last church, and of of course, we see that. Um, we see that the book of revelation right is the compendium of the prophecies of the last days so at least the fact that that book exists confirms my point right that john is the john was kept as the last apostle because his utterances were supposed to be the direction the instruction for the church of the last days so you might ask me how did that happen he was writing to a physical church right a church that existed in his time are you saying that god wasn't really speaking to them but rather he was speaking to us well yes and no right of course he was speaking to them but it so happened that the god used the circumstances of that time to place a burden on the apostle's heart so that as he was writing even though he thought or he was writing as though He was addressing a current situation. God allowed that current situation to be a picture of what the end time church will have to contend with. The church of the last days will have to contend with. You know, many people uh, are very um, enthusiastic about prophecy and not just prophecy, but end time prophecy. If you go on YouTube and Google and just search end times, all kinds of prophets have all kinds of, Um, prophecies about what is about to happen to the world health organization what is about to happen to israel what is about to happen to the united nations you know and those prophecies have a lot of following the reason for that is because we have neglected the scriptures the scriptures of course the scriptures admonish us not to despise prophecy so there is a place for testing prophecy and not just despising it but testing it to see if the spirit of prophecy is behind this utterance. But God's primary means of discernment for us in the last days is his word. And so if we look into the word of God, the word of God already captures the thing that we're going to be contending with in the last days. And it is that thing that John is majorly addressing in this letter. Because you, you wonder why he begins by talking about that, which was from the beginning, that we have seen it, we have touched it. He even repeated himself because you might ask, what's the difference between seeing something with your eyes and looking upon it? He was trying to make the point. He was trying to make a certain point because of what he was dealing with. So the question then is, what is it, What is it, right, that the end time church is going to be dealing with primarily? Now, you don't need to be a prophet to answer, to answer this question or to even attempt it. You just need to be a student of scripture right what is it because there are many questions i can ask you about the end times that you may send me a youtube video of a prophecy but if you actually look at your at your scriptures you will find the answer in scripture for example if i ask you this question like what is the next agenda for israel you know because this is a hot spot topic right you will find many prophecies about israel and all of that and it's very possible for everyone to be drawn away by those prophecies but according to scripture according to the interpretation of the apostles what's the thing that we are looking forward to next in Israel's history right because prophecy does not fail the reason prophecy does not fail we saw in 2nd Peter chapter 1 is because it did not come according to the will of man the will of man was was removed from the compilation of scripture and because of that it is a pure stream of the intention of god and nothing can stop it but anyway israel is not my topic or my question tonight the question which is relevant to our study of the book of first john which is relevant to you i hope is what is it that the last days church will be contending with the most according to the prophecy of scripture because if you get the answer to that question then you will understand a lot that happens in this letter. Does my question make sense? Josh, please rephrase the question again. What's, what is the main thing that the end-time church will be dealing with according to the prophecy of Scripture? According to the writings of the apostles? Deception, the main... falsehood. Deception. Essentially, you know, essentially yeah the umbrella of it is deception right you know it's possible that you can pursue all the other end time prophecies and forget that the the thing that will mark the end time church is a spirit of deception let me show us some very explicit verses in scripture that speak into this the first one is first timothy chapter four this is the apostle paul speaking Now, there are are, are not many times in the New Testament, especially in the epistles, where you hear the apostles saying that the Spirit speaks expressly, right? But this is one of them. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Now, everything else that follows, right? Speaking lies, in hypocrisy, having their own conscience sealed with hot iron, and then forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from foods which God has rec- created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Everything that follows is a consequence, right, of the work of deceiving spirit and doctrines of devils. And if you remember what we looked at in Second Peter chapter 2, you'll notice that, if deceiving spirits came into the church as deceiving spirit, then nobody will be deceived, right? Because we will say, ah, this thing is deception. And that's what I want you to have in mind when we talk about deceiving spirits. Do not think about the most extreme case of somebody who clearly looks like a native doctor, right? Of course, there are those cases. But if that is how Satan was hoping to come into the church, then he will not have succeeded. Peter told us in our last study, second Peter chapter two, that falsehood comes in subtly and he calls the proponents as spirits. So it, so at the surface, what you see is men, men who are preaching something, men who are offering something, <laughs> but what is behind it is spirit. You know, um, I think sometime last year, I was looking up a Nigerian footballer I think it was two years ago. So called Kelechi Ihanacho. Um and I, I think I was I stumbled on his on his Twitter handle, um, and um, I saw a I saw a running joke that he had with Wilfred Ndidi, who's is, who who is or was I don't know what the case is now, his teammates at Leicester City in England, and I think that at that time Cho was on a goal scoring streak. You know he was scoring a lot of goals and he had a difficult time. Then he now picked up some form <laughs> and you know was scoring a lot of goals. So in that tweet, which was a short video, um, Wilfred indeed was was asking Kelechi Cheyannacho to cut soap for him. <laughs> he was he was hailing him and said, Chairman, cut soap for me, I beg." And you know if you're <laughs> if you're from Nigeria, you probably know what the reference means. That a culture. Of going somewhere and receiving soap and baiting with the soap in order to change your fortune has been so normalized, right that it was it was a running joke. Of course, I'm not saying that he he got any kind of soap, but you get I hope you get my illustration that what looks what is propagated by men, whether it is a kind of success or a kind of success in ministry because that has become a lost of the last days. What is propagated by men has at its back end what the Bible calls deceiving spirit. And it's important bec- to mention this explicitly. The spirit spoke about it expressly, that in our days, many will give heed. Some will give heed to deceiving spirit. And of course, if some give heed, they are most likely going to deceive many right? These spirits are subtle. They are subtle. Their doctrines are are subtle. They come in subtly, like Peter said. So that's the first verse, and I'll just show us one more. There are several, but let's look at Revelation chapter 16, which is, I think, the pouring of the sixth bowl. The sixth bowl, yes. Yes. Revelation chapter 16, verse 12. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl, on the great river euphrates and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared and i saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet what are these unclean spirits that are like frogs it says they are they for they are spirits of demons Now, when we hear spirit of demons, we would naturally think that, okay, the outcome of this will be something really bad. But it says that this spirit will be performing signs, right? Performing signs, which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to battle, to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Of course, when you read down up to chapter 18, you realize that this whole system is is the spiritual entity called Babylon, that God speaks to his people and says, come out from among them and be separate from among them. So in the end times, the Bible is clear that deceiving spirits will come and there will be performing signs. And those signs can be miracles. Those signs can be intellectualism. You know, in this our age, for example, we have all kinds of intellectually plausible demonic operations you know it looks it looks sound it looks like the kind of thing the scientific mind can recommend you know i mean look at for example stargazing right um, um astrology they've called it astrology so that it sounds like biology to you right but that's an invitation to peep into forbidden wisdom and forbidden knowledge in our day there is all kinds of ologies <laughs> Right? There is, there is, and not just ologies, there's isms, there's relativism, there is atheism, right? All kinds of belief systems. If you've tried to preach, especially in the West, you realize that the doctrine of demons, which men do not realize is the doctrine of demons. There are some people that you cannot preach to them because they cannot even reason with you. Their belief system has taught them to, to doubt reason itself so there's nothing you can say to them, it doesn't matter if it's good or bad, that can move their needle, right, now I know that that may have been a little bit intense, um, but it's necessary for us to understand the backdrop in which John was writing, so remember that when Jesus called John and his brother James, the Bible gave us a detail, right, that they were mending their nets when Jesus found them, and one thing, you know, that question, there's a book written by Watchman nee called, What Shall This Man Do? Right? That question that, that, um, that, that Peter asked Jesus about, John, what shall this man do? And Watchman nee uses that question to expand on how the apostles each found their calling in Christ and what they were called to be and how you can find your own place. So if you have the time, it's, it's definitely recommended to read it. One of the things he says in that book is that the the destiny of the apostles was indicated in the thing that they were doing when Jesus called them. Peter was fishing, right? When Jesus called him and Jesus told him that he was going to become a fisher of men. Paul was a tent maker or you can say a tent builder when Jesus called him. And then he later referred to himself as a wise master builder. And he's the same symmetry of thought symmetry of work that tent making required is the same symmetry that 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 Peter brought sorry Paul brought into his apostolic labors. That's why you notice that Paul's letters are a bit easier to read than Peter's because there's a symmetry to them. When Jesus called John, he was mending his net, and his was supposed to be the, the ministry of the mender. The mender is the one that is supposed to restore the church back to the vital things, back to the thing that makes us separate from this world. And that's why he uses the language that he uses. So in in an era, in an age where demonic influence, right? Demonic signs, demonic wonders, demonic presence will be prevalent even in the church. The apostle John, the apostle John is the reference point that we have to return to for cleansing always so this is the apostle that calls us back to the vital things and you see the beautiful thing about it is that even though the backdrop of this letter is a negative backdrop which is that he is writing mostly to counter the work of traveling false teachers who are sowing the doctrine of devils in the church which is going to highlight even though there's that negative backdrop um, you know some people's approach to falsehood is to Analyze the falsehood, break down the falsehood, show you the falsehood, you know, do long series on the falsehood, right? And and that is okay. But you see, the way bankers are trained to detect fake currency is not with fake currency. <laughs> they are not trained with fake currency because the the textures of fake currency that can be that can be manufactured is unlimited. If you master one the manufacturer of fake currencies can come up with another one. The way bankers are trained to detect fake currencies is by dealing with the original. They are exposed to the original until until everything in their being, their spirit, their soul, their eyes, their, their nose, can smell fake when they see it. They are exposed to the thing that can only exist by itself. You know, there are many fake versions, but there's only one original version. They are so exposed to it that when they eventually see a fake, it is clear as day and night that this is not original. So John's approach to, to discernment in the last days is not so much our gaining mastery of darkness, And what darkness does, even though there's a place for that is necessary, right? Definitely necessary. And John himself touches on it because Peter says that, or Paul says that we are not ignorant of the devices of Satan. We are not supposed to be ignorant. But as much as we, we are not ignorant, our main defense is our exposure to the original. And that's what makes this book beautiful, that the book focuses on the positive side of fellowship, that if you can stay with the original you will find that there is nothing that you're lacking you'll find that there's nothing that you're lacking you'll find that your life will be full of certain things you'll find that there will be so many riches and eventually when falsehood comes ah he says that you will know <laughs> you know that's a phrase that's that's repeated over 17 times or so in this letter we know we know we know you know many of us oftentimes are expecting that God will give us a spectacular revelation to to reveal falsehood right but from this letter we can see clearly that that's not necessarily God's approach God's approach is to expose you so much to himself so much to himself expose you and I so much to himself So that falsehood will just be a thing that when we see it, we know Kai, this cannot be of God. Now, of course, I didn't intend that this Bible study or this introduction of John will actually take this direction. Because I'm really, really interested in talking about fellowship, you know, that John, which is the theme that John develops in this letter. But it's necessary for us to have that context, right, before we begin to see the major themes that are in the letter. Okay. So the next question we need to then deal with is what is the specific issue, right, that John was addressing that inspired this letter? Or what are the specific issues in his day? What are the specific streams of deception that were coming into the church, into the body of Christ, that provoked John to write? Now, the only way to answer this question, obviously, is by history. Right, we need to be historians and we need to understand okay, what was the historical context of this letter? And that's great because I've already looked into that, so you don't need to. Um, what I want us to do is to discern what he was dealing with by the themes that he focuses on in the letter so that we don't get lost in history. Okay, so I love the first four verses of this, um, of this. Letter, and we're going to do them justice next week when we begin the chapter studies properly but let's touch on them a bit John says that which was from the beginning which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life the first thing to note here is that John is the apostle of the beginnings, right? Remember, he's the mender. His assignment is to to repair the bridge, right? His assignment is to expose us so much to the original that our faith by default will be secure because of that exposure. And he says that the only thing to trust, the only thing to trust is that which was from the beginning. There are many mutations that have happened from the beginning There are many iterations that have happened from the beginning. Somebody can come, which has happened in church history, and claim to have additional revelation from what was in the beginning. Someone can even come to you tomorrow to to bring certain prescriptions, but it says that they don't be carried away. Don't be carried away. So it it means that in his time, there was something about the beginning, right, that was being compromised. Now, what is it about the beginning? He says that the thing that was in the beginning, right? He calls it the word of life. Now, the word of life is an abstract thing, right? What is a word? A word is an abstract thing. A word is something you say. A word doesn't have flesh, right? A word a, a word dwells in the domain of, of ideas. And you can even say in the domain of spirits, right? And in his gospel, John did say that the word became flesh and what he was saying was that the supernatural merged with the natural in the form of a person yes and he said he says in verse one that we heard this person right we have seen him with our eyes which we have looked upon and our hands have handled now before we go into the spiritual significance of this, it's necessary for us to look at his context. He's saying that what I'm about to present to you had a corporal form, right? We were able to perceive this person with all our senses. We were not asleep for those three and a half years. We were not not drugged for those three and a half years. He said we heard him. We saw him with our eyes. (laughs) We looked upon him so... Whatever looked upon him is, and how it is different from seeing him with our eyes, we looked upon him. says we handled him, he was flesh. Yet, even though he was flesh, he was also the word of life. Now, I'm, I'm making this emphasis to highlight to us the error, that, because you're going to see the error more developed in the letter. The error that was apparent in this day, Greek philosophy had begun to invade the church. And there were traveling ministers, right, in those days who were the proponents of this Greek philosophy. At the heart of this Greek philosophy was something called Gnosticism in this day. Gnosticism was the belief that that the physical life is evil and soulish life or spiritual life is good. So that the man is in his spirit is good and there's nothing good in his flesh. And so he's not supposed Of course, you can already imagine the many problems that will arise from such an understanding or interpretation of who man is. One of them is that what... And the main one is that what a man does with his flesh, right, does not matter because his flesh is his physical life. Of course, you know that the early Christians were we're living in a time of intense immorality, in cultures of intense immorality, all kinds of immorality. And the Greeks held on to the philosophy that the good in man is spiritual and everything on the physical level is unclean. That was the word. Everything on the physical level is dirty. Now, of course, the question then, if you hold such a view, right, is who was Christ then? because the testimony of the gospel is that christ came in the flesh and jesus was not just a spirit being right he was perfect in the flesh he was justified in the flesh the gnostics have all kinds of explanations to say that one of the explanations (laughs) one of the ridiculous explanations is that jesus is different from the christ you know and that jesus was a historical person yes But then at the baptism of John, the Christ, the anointing, the person of the Christ came upon him, you know? And then when he died, just before he died on the cross, the person of the Christ left him and then Jesus died, you know? (laughs) That is one of the absurd or ridiculous explanations because if you say that man is divided from his physical form, Right, that the physical life is separated from the supernatural life, from the spiritual life, then you have to explain the incarnation. So you see why John is saying, that there's something that was from the beginning, and that thing was spiritual. Yes, it didn't have any form or anything. But I want you to know that the thing that was spiritual is what was responsible for creating the physical. So that in God's view, the physical and the spiritual are are mixed together. So that what I do with my physical body matters. So that there are some things you can do with your physical body that will affect your spirit. Because the spirit and the material realm are mixed up together. That's why at the resurrection, we are going to be changed. We are going to be changed. we, We will still need a material body. It's just that it will have to be the kind of body that can carry dimensions of the presence of god without disintegration so christianity like someone has said in that sense it's a very restricted sense it's a very materialistic religion or faith system christianity insists that this that the natural and the supernatural are intermarried and it is the deception of the enemy to make you believe that both things are not married. Because if the enemy can make you believe that both things are not married, then he would be able to get you to indulge certain things with your body that will enslave your spirit, right? Or will corrupt your spirit. But John says that in the beginning, the thing, the word of life, the word that brought everything to creation, everything in creation that brought it to life, that that word, he became flesh he said we saw him we heard him all of our senses captured him you know we've always said this that there is this interconnection in god's view between the natural and the supernatural and heaven in its real definition is not a place where we will just be spirits right our hope in the eschaton is not to be spirits. Our hope in the eschaton is that we will, we will be men who and women who still retain bodies, corporal bodies. Because that that togetherness, that oneness of, of the spiritual realm and the physical realm is God's design. And that's why baptism, which is a physical thing, can is used by God to make a statement in the spirit. The realms are not far from each other; they just exist in a different dimension. Yes, yes. So you can be walking by the field of the sluggard, and as you're walking and observing the field, you're observing something physical. But through that physical, through that physical observation, the inspiration of the spirit comes to you. That's what happened to the writer of Proverbs. He said, "I passed through the field of the sluggard, and then wisdom spoke to me." Two realms came together in one. That's why the communion is not bread. (laughs) It's not just bread and wine, right? It's a physical sacrament. It's a physical element that has spiritual implication. So that's what he was saying here in the first verse, right? That there was a corporal nature to Jesus and that he was man. However, now, so he's trying to make you see that Jesus was like you. So now you can understand all the warnings in the letter, right? About whoever denies that Jesus came in the, in, the, in the flesh is of the Antichrist. You can understand what even follows towards the, other, towards the ending part of this chapter one, when he says, if we say we have not sinned, right? Or if we say we have no sins, because one of the things that the agnostics were teaching was that because the Christian is his spirit, it's not possible for him to be a sinner or for him to have sin, he's practically sinless because anything he does in his body is not him. And John says, if we say, if we say we have no sin. Right. Now, the, the interesting thing, though, about Christ is that he took on this corporal form, right? He he took on the same form that you and I have, this physical life. And he, But even though he had physical life, he, he was manifesting something that John is inviting us to, no, John is inviting us to the original. And he's saying that this person was was manifesting the original. He said, the life, the life. So there is a life that Jesus manifested. There is a life that Jesus advertised. There's a life that Jesus put on display. What was that life? That was a life of fellowship with the father. Ah, Jesus came and said that even though you're seeing me, I have a corporal element. Don't, be, don't don't conclude about me based on what you can see because I also have a spirit and in my spirit dwells the father and everything you see me do flows, flows from my fellowship with the father. In case you look at the life of Jesus and you say, Kai, this man was holy. This man was successful. This man did miracles. John says that it was dead life. A fellowship he had with the Father. Now, there are many scriptures where Jesus himself told us this in John's John's gospel. But I'm just going to read only one of it, which is John chapter 14, verse 10. I want you to follow me really closely so that you don't miss what we're saying. And I really trust God to give you understanding even beyond what I'm saying. Philip came to Jesus and said to him, Lord, just show us the Father. You have been saying many things, but just show us the Father and, and we'll be fine. And Jesus was heartbroken. <clears throat> he said, have I been so long with you and yet you have not known me? Kai, okay, we don't have time for that today. Have I been so long with you and yet you have not known me? That this, You see, this is why it's hard to often, if you are not quickened by the Spirit, you can never descend demons, their presence, because, because they are spirits. And that's why scientists are, are still looking for spirit in man. You know, when a man dies, they <laughs> they dissect the body and they're looking for the spirit. It's almost like you are, you, you, like someone said, you dissect the piano and you're looking for the music. And right? it's a spirit. It says, Have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me? So you're going to need a certain kind of sense to discern Jesus. But let's not touch that. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? What is Jesus saying? So Jesus is not saying that he's the Father, for sure. But he's saying that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Wow. So how is that possible? He explains in verse 10. You can take time and read the entire John chapter 14. It's a beautiful chapter. One of my favorites in scripture. It says, do you not believe that I am in the Father? And the father in me. And then he's now saying, okay, in case you don't believe these words I'm speaking to you, ah, it it it's it's borrowed words. It's borrowed words. It is it is the spirit of my father that is streaming through me. In fact, the works that I'm doing is the father who dwells in me. I am a son, it's the father who friends. My hunger, my thirst, my desire for this study is that each of us will arrive at the place of fellowship with the one who dwells in us. That the testimony of our lives will be, to, will be that you see these works, uh, uh, it's not me, no. These works are an effulgence of the fellowship that is inside of me. I know that there's so much you can accomplish with your strength. You can pass exams, you can even get a distinction with your strength. You know, there's so much you can even preach with your strength. There's so much you can accomplish with your strength. But I tell you, nothing, nothing you can accomplish with your strength can compare to what God in you can accomplish. If you find the alignment of fellowship, Jesus said the words I speak to you. I'm not speaking from my intellect. I'm not speaking from my own authority. The the spirit of the Father in me is transmitting. This is what he came to manifest that this is the design of man, that this is the, the, the design that God had for you and I. This is the intention he had, that we will be vessels that will manifest Jesus, that will manifest God. And if you read down in John chapter 14, he says that just as I was in the Father, I will be, just as the Father was in me, I and the Father will now be in you. So that if it is true that you're a Christian, you're supposed to be manifesting Jesus yes but you see if you are going to manifest jesus you are going to know the way of fellowship you know john is inviting people to fellowship he's saying i know there's so much counterfeit around you i know that false teachers have invaded the space false prophets have invaded the space but but just come into fellowship if if it is true that you fellowship your results will be different i don't know about you but has it bothered you has it bothered you that you can see two Christians, two Christians that hear the same message. And the difference in the life of those two Christians is like night and day. Has it bothered you before? Or you see two Christians, one is dripping with the oil of the spirit and the other one is dry. And maybe you have been on one of those spectrums. right? One is dripping with the supplies of the spirit. One is walking through through the wilderness with joy, walking through trials with joy, and one and one is heartbroken, completely broken down by the circumstances. Have you seen two Christians that sat down, heard the same word? One became transformed and one was not transformed. The difference, friends, if you don't hear anything else today, the difference is fellowship. It's fellowship. Because Jesus said, that the Father in me, in me, He does the works. So if if I want my life to produce the works, right? If I want my life to manifest the Father, the only way is fellowship. In verse two of John chapter of first John chapter one, John says, "The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was to the fa- which was with the Father." And was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. And why are we declaring to you that you also, that you also may have fellowship with us? And truly, truly, our fellowship is with the father and with the son. Truly, our fellowship is with the father. So all of this is to invite you into fellowship. Says there's something, there's, there is a life that was from the beginning. That life is the operating system that man was designed to operate with. But the fall happened and we never saw the beauties of that life express itself. But then that that life became flesh and it manifested a mode of being. Jesus was the one that was sleeping in the midst of the storm, undisturbed by the storm. What manner of man was that? John is saying that. It was a fellowship he had with the Father, and he's inviting us to that fellowship. Do you see? And then he now begins to tell us the riches that will emerge from that fellowship. Now he mentions about four of them in this letter, and I think that's where we would round up. The first one is in verse 4. He says, And this thing we write to you that your joy may be full. So the first effect of a life that fellowships with God is that your joy may be full. I know I've been asking myself, why, does, why did John start with the matter of joy? Why did he start with the matter of joy? You know, we've said before that the same way you get tested physically, right? That your soul can also test. And all of us are testing our souls. In fact, our physical test, our physical hunger is all but a picture of the test of our souls. We are testing for for life, for reality. You know, that's what we look for when we look for companions, companionship. Right? That's when we look for, when we look for a football club to be supporter, to be supporters of. You know, you, you you when you're referring to your club, you're referring to them as we, as us, even though none of the millions is is even <laughs> going past your house. But but it doesn't matter to you because there's. You want that sense of, there is a test for community, a test to love and to be loved, a test for the reality, a test for the drink that is drinking Did Jesus said that beware of covetousness for a man's life does not consist in the, in the abundance of his possessions. The only person that knows that is the person that has abundance of possessions because he realized that possessions were not made to satisfy man. You know if you ask the average young person what's the meaning of life they'll think you know life is a tragedy you know the meaning of life is to be happy well if you say that that's the meaning of life the question is how are you finding that meaning because for many people happiness is in possessing things happiness is in becoming something happiness is in accomplishing something right happiness is in even power you know for, for most people, their mood depends on which political party is in office because we, we, we have learned to tie our identity to parties and to, and to men whose breath are in their nostrils. You see, John is saying that the only way to be full with joy, joy unspeakable, joy that cannot be shaken by anything earthly is through fellowship. That when we see you, we can Gauge the level of your fellowship by the level of joy that is in your heart. Now, there's a difference between joy and happiness, of course, because you and I'm sure you know the difference. And you know by now that the meaning of life is not happiness. If anything, the meaning of life is holiness. But that's a very complex thing to be able to explain tonight. But you see, happiness is too shallow to be the meaning of life. Right? because the because the mother who lays down her life for the child is not doing it for happiness if it was about because happiness is based on external circumstances right but there's something more than happiness that makes her willing to die for the child if it was happiness she would have chosen her life over the child so it means that there's something stronger in life than happiness and it is joy happiness is based on external state of being, right? External circumstances. How does it feel? How does it taste? You know, does it benefit me? Am I gaining something? Is it for my good? <laughs> but joy is a fountain. You know, you can be mourning. You can be mourning. Yes, but, but still joyful. Because, because joy is not tied to it. Mourning is tied to it, so you can mourn. But joy is, is tied to heaven. And he's saying that when you come into this quality of fellowship, your joy will be full. Oh, and that's my prayer for us in this study, that our joy will be full. In chapter 2, verse 1, he tells us the second thing that fellowship with God will do for you. He says, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. John is saying that it's possible that you arrive at a place in your Christian life where you do not sin. And that's why he's writing to you about fellowship. He's writing to you about the vital things, about the foundational things, about the beginning, that there is a righteousness, right? That is supposed to emerge from your life. And that, that righteousness is supposed to, is going to be the proof that you are indeed born of God. Now, all of these fruits are also um, the and ant- antithesis right of the false teachers and those who believe their false doctrine that falsehood cannot produce righteousness he says i'm writing to you so that you may not sin so that just in case your struggle is with sin john's answer is an invitation to fellowship and it is fellowship with the father which is going to explain what that means Towards the end, I think in verse 26 of chapter two, he tells us the third reason why he writes. He says, these things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. So it's not only that your life will manifest righteousness and through that righteousness, you reveal the nature of God, is that your fellowship will keep you from deception. And we're going to see how that will happen. Fellowship will keep you from deception what this means is that you are going to be filled with the knowledge of truth right you're going to be filled with the knowledge of truth so that you will be a person of conviction you know i told you earlier that the world we live in friends is is testing it's thirsty you can you can pray for god to open your eyes to see how testy the world is testing for reality you know we have social media we have celebrities we have movies we have football We have everything, but any man that stops to think knows that we have lost Jesus, the desire of the nations. We have lost reality. Of course, they may not know that it's Jesus that they are seeking, but they will know that at the bottom of their soul, there is no satisfaction. One of the things that our generation is testing for is for men of conviction, men of conviction, women of conviction, that even even if they tide turns against them they are not in need for the crowd they are in it because there is a conviction the world satan has not been able to understand or to defeat those kinds of spirits those kinds of men who are rooted in conviction and john is saying that through fellowship with the father you can arrive at the place where truth is formed in your heart and you have convictions so that even if they come to you and say, let us go and seek familiar spirit, this your suffering is too much. You have convictions. So that even if you are like Esther, you say, if I die, I die, if I perish, I perish. It will mean nothing to you. Ah, When men of conviction begin to stand, men who don't mind, men and women who don't mind losing everything because they have already lost everything for Jesus, that witness shakes the world. It shakes the world to its feet. And he's saying that it's your fellowship with the Father that will produce that. And Finally, in chapter 5, verse 13, he tells us final reason. He writes, he says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know. <laughs> okay. Now think about what he wants you to know. He says that you may know that you have eternal life. And that you may continue to believe. So, of course, John is going to talk about, not directly, but indirectly. He's going to talk about the myth of one saved, forever saved, right? And you can already guess what the answer is to that. as I'm writing to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. That you may continue to believe. Now, my question for us is, how do you know that you have eternal life? How do you know? If I tell you, how do you know you have one millionaire? You can show me your bank statement, right? But but if I'm talking about a never ending life, the question is, how do you know? How do you know that when your pilgrimage on earth is over, that your passage will be a passage into life everlasting, not death? You know, John's answer to the question, John's answer to the question is that, you know, that's all, you know. And you see, (laughs) it's not an intellectual knowing, right? Okay, Terence writes, by faith, I I believe. faith has a faculty of knowing that that, that gives faith its substance. Without the faculty of knowing, there can be no faith. You can confess it, but if you don't have the knowing, then it's not real. John says that you may know, and the only way to know (laughs) is to know so what am i saying that a person can fellowship with god so much that they know okay this is this is the permutation of assurance this is the permutation of peace that satan may be everywhere around you deception may be everywhere around you but because of fellowship you know somebody can come and insult you (laughs) but you know you know that Jesus was the creator of the world or is the creator of the world and the creator of the world accepted ridicule and insult from the people he created. Think about it. If something you created ridicules you, ridicules you, disrespects you, the only way you will not respond is that you know, you know. The Bible says that in John chapter 13 that Jesus knowing that he had come from the Father, knowing that he was going back to the Father, having loved his disciples, he loved them to the end. Yes, somebody might be, might be insulting you and you are still loving on them because you know. This knowing cannot be bought. This knowing cannot be confessed. This knowing cannot be manufactured. This knowing is the product of the permutation of fellowship with the father, you can know things about your children so that it doesn't matter what is manifesting in front of you, you know, you know, you know, yes, that's the manifestation, that's the permutation. And we don't have time. I would have shown us the I'd have shown us the, the elements of fellowship because a fellowship is the entrance into all of these things. But we're going to see it as we study the letter. I would have shown us the permutations of this, um, so or rather the elements of fellowship that produce this knowing, this unshakable assurance. Because if Satan cannot make you lose your peace, then he cannot manipulate your life. It is because he is able to make us lose our peace and we speak carelessly. We decide carelessly because we, we, we lose that sense of knowing. But John is saying, no worries. In case you've lost it, just... Just come back to fellowship. Come back to the original. And the Holy Spirit can make you know that you have eternal life. You know, the moment you know you have eternal life, it loses its value. Nothing that Satan sells to you counts again. But we don't have time, so I'm going to conclude with the way that this letter ends because now that we've laid the context, it's important for us to see how the letter ends so that it doesn't feel so arbitrary, right? For a long time, I always felt that this letter ended in a very arbitrary way. But verse 21 of 1 John chapter 5 says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So the question is, what is the primary element, enemy of fellowship? Because, you know, he started by saying that he's writing so that your joy can be full. And friends, it's possible that you and I may be looking for joy elsewhere. And maybe we're not only looking for joy elsewhere. We're actually finding joy elsewhere. We're finding joy in career, finding joy in football clubs, finding joy. And when I say joy, of course, I'm not saying none of these things I'm mentioning is wrong, obviously. But I'm saying that it's possible that these things can, can take the place that only God was meant to feel. That I don't realize my need for God because I'm rich. Jesus talked about the deceitfulness of riches. You know, that's one of the strands of deception that there will be, you know, our world today is so much more prosperous than it was 2000 years ago, you know, right? And that's why our songs are very earthly and less heavenly because in those days, the songs were heavenly because there was nothing on earth to hold to. But thank God, thanks to, to civilization, we, we, we live in a much richer society. There's so much to be alive for. There's so much to be thankful for. And the deceitfulness of riches can make riches your your God. The enemy of fellowship is idols. It's everything that feels that joy. Everything that replaces the joy of prayer. That replaces the joy of obeying God. That replaces the joy of knowing that you heard the voice of your beloved says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. But if you arrive at the place where, by the help of the Spirit, you lay down your idols, then your fellowship will continue to be richer. And the blessing of that permutation is that you will know God. <laughs> you will know God. What a blessing it is for a man to say, I know God. I don't know everything about him, but I know God. The only way a man, a woman can say that is that we lay down idols. Whether the idol is food or marriage or sex or ambition, we lay down the idol. We lay down the idol. Oh, Father, bring us to the place, bring us to the place where we lay down our idols so that we can know you where we lay down the things that limit us from a holy, a persistent pursuit of you. Lead us to the place where we lay down so that we can know you. And let the blessings of fellowship Jesus begin to overflow. Bring us, oh God, into the economy of knowings. Bring us into the economy of of the witness of truth that establishes us in convictions bring us into the economy of righteousness that our lives will demonstrate a power over sin that is uncommon in this world and bring us to the place of deep satisfaction where our lives will demonstrate the power of assurance the power of the of the people who know their god the power of being at peace the power of joy in the mighty name of jesus Amen.